Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Wesker demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up, and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I am here with my older brother. Wesley. Today, we are talking a film from 2021, an Apple original. Coda. Unnecessary distinction. Apparently, there was a movie from 2020 starring Katie Holmes and Patrick Stewart, also called Coda, about playing the piano. And did that refer to, like, a musical phrase called a coda? Uh Uh-huh, as does this, in a way. Not an acronym kind of coda. But I think it plays both ways this way, right? Well, it's definitely all caps, so it's an acronym. But how does it play in the uh, conclusion kind of way? I don't know. They had the (laughs) monkey trouble style running for the hug under sweeping music. They're definitely going for the feels, but I'm going to say right up at But I'll say at the top, I felt the feels. Yeah, you cried. Kelly Ray was crying. She tried to hide it. I cried several times. Man. <laughs> First movie in a long time where I cried. I feel like this was the exact opposite. Same thematically, but just like a twisted multiverse inversion of Sound of Metal. There were musical montages and there were specifically funny moments. And it still made me feel more feels than last year's Sound of Metal. Do you still wonder if hearing is bad? <laughs> I don't think hearing is bad. Hearing is bad. That said, it was just the defensive position of the brother who was jealous of her sister for being the hearing child and the parents not understanding. What, if we were blind, would you want to be a painter? Why would you want to sing? There were tropes set up. It was the resistance and the stakes that seemed a little bit manufactured. But I think that on the whole, it was a much more joyous experience and the family connection. The family was brought together, ironically, by her branching out, leaving home mm-hmm. or doing the things that maybe weren't as inclusive for her family as she would have wanted them to be. She made the hard decision to stay and I think needed the family's encouragement to go. And then when they were in- united in that, she had the freedom and the release to, to do it with their blessing. Yep. So right at the top, they're on this Forrest Gump-style fishing boat, a troller. <laughs> yeah. And she's singing her little heart out, and they're minding their business. I didn't know what this movie was about, so I'm just going in super fresh. 
But you knew what CODA stood for no. going in, right? I knew what it stood for, but I didn't apply the meaning to this film. I didn't know that this film was about a child or children of deaf adults. I really went in totally blind to this film. And so she's singing her little heart out and they're minding their business. And I'm like, she's got a nice voice and all, but that must get annoying for them after a while. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was such a great setup because you get her love of it. You get her isolation. You get the the family dynamic. And it's this wonderful look into this seafaring world and this family's business, which apparently is generational and all that jazz. Like, what a great little setup, don't you think? Yes, although it was conveniently set up. I thought, hmm, does her singing, is her ability to sing, is it relevant? Where are we going with this? And then I thought I understood, oh, it's Mr. Holland's opus, basically. The miscommunication between the deaf people and the people who can sing and who love music. And for for a minute, I thought it was going to be kind of a deaf musical where she's singing and then they notice and then they fall into like a synchronized dance with her. And they do all these musical numbers and use creative sign language and stuff as choreography. Interpretive dance. That's where you thought this was going? Well, the three-time Oscar-nominated Coda, you thought that's where this was going? Not really, but the three-time Oscar-nominated Coda, I thought was going to have recurring themes, a strong through line of, uh, you know, and so I was like, okay, how is this fishing relevant and her ability to sing? Um, But it was all relevant. When you look back, it all makes sense, doesn't it? Yes, but they're deaf fishermen or whatever, and they've gone generations of fishing exactly the way they need to. Has the Coast Guard only rolled up on them when their hearing daughter is not on the boat? Like that was the only time and they had no safeguards in place, no flashing lights, nothing like that? No, no, the the spy ratted them out. The The spy radioed uh, the Coast Guard to come and do a check. That's a bummer. Yeah, dude. I mean, I'm if that's not the case, that's at least what the family believed that they were set up, that the inspector was kind of blindsided by the fact that they were deaf, called them in in violation and then let the Coast Guard do the dirty work. Even her reaction was slightly disproportionate. Oh, sorry, I wasn't aware you weren't hearing. Let's proceed as best we can, you know, communicating in whatever way is necessary. Perhaps I'll text you, you know, something like that. I wondered if this is the more obvious reaction because as, forgive me, disabilities go or impairments go, hearing impairments, deafness is in a strange place because it's not outwardly repulsive or bad. And yet in this movie, some people, like the inspector, definitely had a negative reaction. Oh, you're deaf? Well, that's bad. And mm. that wasn't has never been the case for us because we've grown up with hearing impairments with our parents and stuff. But I wondered if this movie was playing up the drawbacks of deafness. Because that seemed Mm. pretty mean. It seemed less understanding and more cruel. And Mm. definitely they got teased. You know, I will grant kids are terrible people until they learn to be not so terrible. And so I can understand if she talked funny, having learned from her deaf parents. Thankfully, they didn't do that impression of deaf speak. Yeah, she she declined probably very tactfully from a holistic movie perspective. Right. But still, kids are terrible and they will tease you and stuff. Um, But it seemed like this movie was positioning itself to be society at large looking down on deaf people as a social disability as much as it is just a physical thing. You know, does that make sense? Mm. It was like deaf people are bad. And I I never found that to be the case in life. 
Yeah, I wonder if xenophobia, the definition of xenophobia is broad enough to incorporate disabilities. Like I know it's fear of the unknown or fear of the different, right? And does it include fear of disability? Because it seemed like any repulsion or rejection was a result of fear or not understanding how to interact with, you know, a deaf person. And that was a theme that they did visit in some ways. Like when Leo and Ruby have it out at Leo's like hiding spot or thinking spot. By the water, yeah. Yeah, he had his water spot and she had her cliff spot where apparently they went to think respectively (laughs) when they had it out at his little spot and he's like oh you know he plants the seed at the dinner he's like oh saint ruby coming to the rescue and then her parents defend her and they're like she's trying to help the family and then later he's like i'm a man i can do this you're afraid like your part in this ruby is that you're afraid and embarrassed for us to look stupid and you're actually caretaking for the other people you're caretaking for the public because you don't want them to be afraid of dealing with us. Well, maybe the public needs to grow up and learn how to deal with us as much as we need to learn how to deal with them. Like it takes two. All I'm saying is that I think they touch on this theme of isolating themselves, but also the other part is the wider public's lack of desire to engage. Yeah. While we're on the brother, as Ruby's friend clearly was, (laughs) when... So I I wondered because he was very expressive and emotive. And I wonder if anybody, I don't say I do, but does anybody have a gauge of how expressive and emotive and gesticulative sign language is? And does that make for good acting? Do you act differently (laughs) in sign language than you do, you know? As if you're on stage, everything has to be heightened and you have to Theatrical. speak in a, you know, or affect an accent or whatever. Yeah. Would, would they subtitle non-ASL sign language movies for us? I always look at interpreters as performers because they don't just speak with their hands. They speak with their whole body. They speak with their face. They're very emotive. And that's kind of my baseline for good sign language. They didn't feel, Leo didn't feel overacting to me. He did feel passionate. And it was really fun to see siblings like shit talking each other in sign language. And in in dirty sign language, they were swearing and stuff, which they took a lot of joy in. (laughs) And so it was fun to see. I didn't feel like they were overacting in any way. Daniel Durant, who was who was the brother character of Leo, this is not a slight on his acting ability. He was passionate and you could see all of it coming through, his frustration. He's making facial expressions while he's signing and uh, he was very emotive. Whereas Troy Kotzer, who played Frank the dad, was less so. He was more understated. Uh, obviously, all, the, all of these uh, performers are actually deaf. But I was wondering how you differentiate and distinguish, determine good acting for non-hearing people. Because Troy Kotzer is the sole Oscar nominee, which I think is a little bit unfair. It, it was kind of him just steely gazed or or kind of tearful gaze. And it was really just kind of more beard forward acting. Like he already <laughs> had to surmount the obstacle of being creepy looking. And how do we make dad go from creepy mm. looking to understanding and loving and emotional? Which he definitely was. And I wondered what the gauge was. Because Marley Matlin, of course, is an Oscar winner for Children of Lesser God 1987. I thought that Daniel Durant did a good job as the brother. Um, Ruby, Amelia Jones, was a real standout, which we can get into. But Troy, the sole Oscar nominee, and I wondered why you thought that was. I wonder if it's related to the ending 
the, what did you compare it to when she comes running out of the car? To monkey trouble. They think they have to say goodbye forever. And then there's the running, like <laughs> musical slow motion running last hug, teary hug. <laughs> I, I watched monkey trouble a thousand uh... years ago and that movie was so dumb. But then the stupid monkey running back at the end to hug her, spoiler, made me cry. <laughs> Which is what I also was trying to channel in my film Smokey, which I think we've referenced in other reviews, where the girl and the dog reunite after their horrendous night together. There's just something about it. So in her, in the monkey trouble end, where she comes running back to the family, they do a group hug. She has a moment with her brother and her mom, and then a longer moment with her dad. And I was like, okay, this story was about father and daughter they had that nice little moment on the bed of the pickup truck you know she's out there on the boat with him I think they were trying to underscore that that was the main relationship and so in that sense Troy is the main supporting character and I thought had a really touching moment on the back of the truck that was the one that made Kelly Ray cry for sure and that's when I expected her to to sign and sing they saved that for the audition. Yeah, I was like mad. Why wouldn't you? Why Why aren't you signing to him when they're on the bed of the truck? And then I was like, oh, that's why. Because they want to save it for the end. But it was also more personal, more intimate for her, for him to hold her, touch her. You know, of course, they're actors, but they're playing a family. And I completely 100% believed her when she let him touch her face like it was the most normal thing in the world. Yep. And her throat. And her throat, which is normally very uncomfortable for me, but was very touching for me to see. <laughs> uh, and touching. so I, I bought it. Uh, but I believed them in that moment. And I think that that's what put Troy Kotzer's performance over the edge. I mean, I do think that this movie had a lot of great things going for it. Yes, it was emotional. Yes, it rang true without trying to be pretentious. But in a way, it was very formulaic and kind of structured, a little bit obvious in places once I understood where we were going. Hmm. It had a weird magic that was true within that distinctly artificial framework. I'm not sure that people are like, this was the most realistic depiction. Maybe a lot of it was was true. And it certainly felt as you said filial and familiar and genuine and so it threw me a little bit off guard like I was like the Jeff Goldblum style music teacher I was like this dude cannot be the comic relief I was really afraid he was going to pop up and be like what is this sign like this is fascinating teach me more about it and he was going to orchestrate the thing it was so obvious the didn't he do that when he said nice to fuck you i mean wasn't that essentially what you were fearing exactly it's completely obvious that that was going to happen right and it played for comic effect and there was a lot of that in there but it did feel like the best type of comedy that had a real heart and a real basis it's just thematically it felt like a different kind of movie than its oscar contention would suggest i don't know it's not a bad thing rolling stone summed it up pretty well they said, Coda's every single Sundance movie rolled into one. Nice. And I think that's getting at what you're, I think they're picking up what you're putting down because it was distinctly indie, distinctly romantic comedy, family drama, like all of that stuff that we know and we understand, but with this twist with sign language and the music. You know what it reminded me of in a weird way that no one will ever make this comparison was the help. 
The Help had very serious themes, but it played so light and funny and familiar that this was just like a feel-good version of Sound of Metal or Mr. Holland's Opus, which was equal, which was (laughs) even strangely more serious. I hear what you're saying, and I think it's interesting that you're coming at this from a public kind of perspective, right? We're talking about how CODA is perceived by a general audience, but I think it's worth exploring our very specific approach to CODA as COHIA, children of hearing impaired adult. COHIA. Did you just make that up? I just made it up. Children of a hearing impaired adult, which we are, which we've mentioned in previous reviews, right? Our mom is hearing impaired. Her family thought that she was dumb, as they called it back in the day. And then later on, they found that she was near deaf and they put her into schools for the deaf and hearing impaired. And she grew up like that until she went to high school. Which mom is super emotional about, by the way. That they misdiagnosed her for so long. Yeah, that they thought she was dumb and it wasn't her fault. Yeah, imagine that. I mean, to think, oh, she's just dumb, when in actuality she wasn't getting the type of education she needed, had all of her mental faculties. And then she matriculated to Hollywood High School, of which she's super proud, and graduated from Hollywood High, got an associate, I think, had had a career, had a family, had a quote-unquote normal life. And then all of the effects that that had on us as kids. I mean, I related to Ruby in very, very personal, specific ways. Like, I have vivid memories of mom being on the phone and being like, talk to them. And I get on the phone. Vivid memories, like from childhood? I still get that. (laughs) Of course, except she's, thanks to text and email, she's got a a lot of other alternatives to the phone. But as a kid, it's a different experience, right? As an adult, you're capable. As an adult, you're mature. But as a kid, it's not abusive and it's not damaging, but it's an unfair burden to put on a kid to caretake for your parent. Your parent is supposed to be there to take care of you. When you have to caretake for your parent, it's an unusual burden that has all kinds of downstream effects. Undoubtedly, it's a heavy responsibility in Ruby's case to be the sole family translator. Mom had the two of us and she had dad. You know, dad didn't suffer any hearing impairment until he was much older. And I remember that stuff, too. And at the same time, it came so naturally to me. I felt several times in sort of the hammier aspects of this movie that it was as if they had only been deaf for a week. When he looked to her, like, to translate what was happening during the fishing board meeting. Which was so reminiscent of Jaws. Do all fishermen have, like, contentious group community meetings like that? Yeah. Apparently fishing is super competitive and all this stuff. And fine, look, I I get it. It's a tough trade and you get stiffed on prices because you're just a supplier or whatever. Anyway, I I yelled at the TV. I was like, Ruby, get up. It's obvious. This is what you're going to have to do. This is your role. You're the translator. And I feel like we did do that automatically. I always positioned myself in such a way when mom would talk to people that she could see me and I would be in between so that I could communicate to other people and mom could see that satisfaction. It didn't make sense to me a lot of the time that she didn't understand her role. I get that she was a teenager and she was starting to look in her own directions and apart from her family. Undoubtedly, that was hard for the family. But I thought that sometimes she made it difficult by deliberately not bridging that gap between her Mm. non-hearing parents and the rest of the hearing world. But obviously a very strong character. And as soon as she employs her strength toward her own future... She starts making traction real quick toward the guy that she wants and the career that she wants and the passions she wants to pursue. 
It was both her blessing and her curse when she said, I've never done anything without my family. She has that family connection and everybody loves each other and they're one big happy family and that's amazing. But at the same time, she was almost incapable of doing anything else down to the kind of hammy like refusal to understand or to commit and that weird throat singing versus, you know, full body singing, <laughs> belly singing or whatever. It's kind of right. a little bit frustrating. But tying it back to us being kids of hearing impaired adults, you know, we lived our own lives being able people in all respects with hearing, liked music and all that stuff. I wondered if it was a little bit over the top for none of them to understand that she loves music. I mean, they seemed like pretty hip, pretty with it parents for their age. And they were like, what? You love music? How could you love music? You know, I mean, we were setting up the, the stakes to knock them down later. But it didn't ring true to me that they would not understand that she would follow something that they were kind of uh, left out of. And I wonder how much of that is our own experience, right? Because despite our mom's hearing impairment, she loved music. Yeah. But she would listen to music and she would feel it. And she would belt out in a tone deaf kind of way. But I loved it because I knew she enjoyed it. And similarly, you know, dad has his groove. And so in a house with hearing impairment, right, we had a lot of music. It's not like we had it on all the time. It's not like my girls who have Alexa and Paloma, who requests songs on Spotify in the car constantly. Like, it wasn't like that. But anyway, we grew up in a home full of music. And so the idea that Ruby's parents could not understand it is probably a little foreign to us. But man, was that scene powerful when they're in the concert and you're waiting to hear the result of all the work that she and Homeboy have done for their duet. And then they cut out the sound and mom and dad are smiling politely and looking around. And I felt like that was the first time I ever really thought about what it would have been like for mom when I took her places or I brought her to church to hear me play guitar and sing or I took her to the VeggieTales movie where she had no subtitles and probably couldn't understand a single thing. Did you ugly cry? I, I full on cried. The Sound of Metal stuff, where they did that a lot, where they we got his hearing perspective, muffled bass and thumps and things like that, like the dad was enjoying the rap. They used that device quite a lot. And I thought, okay, we're just not doing that in this movie. This is a movie for hearing people to understand maybe a little bit about the deaf community. And then they dropped out the sound. And I thought, okay, I guess we're doing that. And it felt like a gimmick until you realized that for this movie, it was it only happened a couple of times and it was impactful, surprisingly impactful in that way, where it becomes immediately uncomfortable. I imagined watching this in the theater and whenever it happens, you suddenly become aware again that you're in a theater and surrounded by people and you're just like, <laughs> just bring it back. Just bring it back. We're in a movie. And doing that, that level of discomfort and frankly kind of boredom where you're taken out of the experience is exactly what the family was experiencing. They understood what was happening, but they were still like, what are you going to do for dinner? Because I, I like, do I have to go to the store? And they, were, they, they wanted to be there to support, but there was nothing to carry them and they checked out. And that's a completely valid response that, yeah, it, was, it wasn't meant to be like tear inducing. It's impactful, but at the same time for them, it's routine. Routine. And it just, you know, everyone is staring raptly and they're looking around at all the people who are nodding their heads and, and wiping their tears. Yeah. And they're like, I, okay. They're just removed. Um, I think this movie hit a lot of the right notes and kind of a lot of the wrong notes also. 
Marley Matlin, who played the mom, said the hardest line for her to deliver was the line about, if we were blind, would you want to be a painter? Why would you want to sing? You know, obviously the implication being we can't hear it, so why would you want to do that? Because it didn't ring true to her as a non-hearing person. And I think that was a convention that was set up to make this movie, you know, more broadly appealing to more people. But I do not believe that that was the genuine sentiment of a family, regardless of whether or not they understood it. I think it was more that they were on the defensive and that they were afraid of having their built-in interpreter leave. There was a a weird built-in codependency on her part Mm -hmm. as well, where she felt she needed them for certain things. So it was Mm -hmm. a coming-of-age tale in that way, with a lot of markers in place, a lot of tropes that helped it to get there, some more effective than others. But what I want to talk about is the acting stuff. Starting with Amelia Jones. So Amelia Jones, I'm continually surprised when people do a flawless American accent when they're clearly British in interviews. It almost is like they're faking their accent in interviews because it's like, oh, that's obviously an American teenager. Totally, dude. Right. She'd never hit a false note. And then I found that none of them knew how to fish. (laughs) The dad, Troy Kotzer, was like, I had to go and learn how to fish. And there was like fish guts. And I'm like, man, I guess I'm going to have to do that for this movie. They all had to learn how to fish. Amelia Jones had never taken a singing lesson in her life, knew nothing about ASL, intensely trained for like nine months on those things, and then had to act in an American accent and sing and sign at the same time. And have bomb-ass Gen Z eyebrows. (laughs) Okay, didn't even note the eyebrows. She was just a ponytail kid from Fishertown or whatever. But uh, And fish. And she had to fish. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, they all had to learn all that stuff. And that's why I was wondering if anybody was going to be nominated for acting. Look, do you only get what you get on screen or is it part of the process as well? Do you you need behind the scenes glimpses in order to gauge what is a better acting job than another? Because in terms of commitment, preparation, training, practice and execution – She had all of those things that made me think, who is this girl? That's pretty wild that she was able to do this and I don't know her name or anything else that she's done. Um, She talked about the scene during the the Berkeley audition. The signing had to be perfect. And if it wasn't, if she did seven takes singing that song, if there was only one take where the signing was perfect, that was the take they had to use. Like, that's a really tough road. I think the movie is a type that maybe suffers a little bit in the realism department because of how used we are to this kind of movie. Um, I keep wanting to say comedy, but, you know, just kind of lighter, family-friendly fare. But it seems Mm -hmm. like this was a hardcore, ultra-rehearsed indie art house drama kind of under the surface. Yeah, high-end indie art house drama comedy that was still bootstrapped, I mean, under $10 million, right? And sold in a bidding war at Sundance. Kind of a weird class of film that doesn't really exist these days. I didn't know about all of her training and preparation. It does make me feel like she was snubbed a little bit. So, you know, hats off to Amelia Jones for sure. It sounded like she was surrounded by a very accomplished cast of actors who also happened to be deaf, all by a writer-director who apparently curated this film with lots of love and care over a long period of time. This is still a certain kind of movie that just is a little bit better than other movies of that type. I think this movie is anomalous in the sense that it's hard to pin down what the star is. What's the key driver here? 
Is it the relatively unknown cast? Is it the formulaic yet heartwarming storyline and structure? Was it the coming-of-age story that just had a slightly different twist on it? Like, who or what is the star of this film? It was a music-slash-fishing movie. It was a clash of music culture and fisher culture, which they did in a single montage. Regardless of my very personal connection to Ruby Rossi's experience, Coda, as a Kohia, really worked. Really worked for me. (laughs) I mean, I'd give this a totally... I'll give it a totally on your behalf. Uh, okay, I'm not going to go that far. They played it funny or whatever, and and it was light and inconsequential, as was the faux tension between her and the music teacher. It was like encouraging whiplash, you know, where she was all <laughs> he was all driven, but there were no stakes. She's supposed to, when he gives her the ultimatum that she has to show up and commit and respect his time, and then she can't because she's going through real drama with her family that she can't get out of. When she goes to him all downcast and he's judging her for not living up to her commitments, tell him what happened. Well... It was unavoidable. You have to understand, this is the unique situation of my family. It's not a reflection of my commitment to your music. That's still an excuse. That's still an excuse. And it was... So it was very effective narratively to portray the impossibility of her situation. But it's still an excuse. Like, if you're going to make the decisions to succeed in the ways that you want to succeed then realignment of expectations with the other people and things in your life, like that's necessary. I don't know. I'm kind of siding with the instructor on that one. I'm just saying it was a little bit backwards from some of the stuff we experienced, but easily forgivable. Like it was really hard when she was like, I prayed that you were deaf when you were born. It's like, ouch. Because (laughs) isn't this clear evidence that I don't think that hearing is bad? Because the (laughs) first, because I told Kelly the first thing that I, as the first child experienced, the first thing that mom did is snap her fingers next to my ear and see if I would flinch. And then she was all happy when I could hear it. Coda was a good movie. It was sweet if it was a little bit surfacey. There were a lot of really deep themes that I don't think they really plumbed for dramatic effect, but they did for emotional effect. I feel like it hit a lot of nerves and made me sad and happy and joyous and all that stuff, which I think is what it was aiming for. I don't think this is a movie with pretensions. I think it was meant to be sort of fun and also a little bit eye-opening because we come to care for this family. I'm going to give this an an all right, but it's a very good, very high, nothing wrong with this movie, kind of all right. And largely that comes from the acting, in particular from Amelia Jones. Marley Matt was great. The family was great. Good luck, Troy Kotzer. I hope that this, you know, nomination comes through for you uh, because it didn't for What's His Nuts in uh, Sound of Metal. All right. I finally got it out of you. An all right from Wes, a good from Iris. This is our discussion on Apple TV Plus's three-time Academy Award nominated CODA. CODA worked for me, and uh, we'd love to know if it worked for you. 818-835-0473 is our phone number. Or whatever movies at gmail.com, at or whatever movies on Instagram and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. 
Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electricast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electricast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electricast podcasts and hear the culture. Electricast. Electricast.